Welcome to The Edge by MGR with your host, Marissa Jacobus. Hello and welcome to The Edge Lifestyle Podcast. This is Marissa and I am your host. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to tune in. This podcast highlights the latest trends in life, health, and wellness to help you live a better life. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, welcome. This is an exciting episode. We have Dr. Dylan Jacobus as our guest today. If any of you are interested in what it takes to become a doctor, we are going to be going behind the scenes of the white coat and get a real life general surgeon or and get real about life of a general surgeon. So let's get started, guys. And hi, Dylan, and welcome to The Edge. And so glad you can join us out of your busy schedule. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like you do general surgery, is that correct? So I am still in training. Okay. I am a general surgery resident at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, very cool. And what year are you in in your training? I am a third year resident um, and we have an option of seven years of training or five years of training after medical school and I'm in the five-year track so three of five. Oh, very cool very cool and then after that then you will officially be a part of the the hospital that you work at Uh, then I will be done with training and I can seek out different employment opportunities at any hospital in the country okay very cool who knew and what inspired you to pursue this career and this specialty That was one of the harder questions Mm -hmm. to answer. Um, So part of becoming a doctor, getting into medical school, and then getting into residency, we go through all these interview processes. And, you know, I interviewed at probably 10 medical schools, and then I interviewed at, um, I think, 12 residency sites. And that was always one of the questions, you know, why... Why do you want to be a doctor? What made you get into this field? Why did you want to be a surgeon? Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to answer anything other than the generic answer of, oh, well, I wanted to help people. And, you know, I liked I liked fixing things. And I wanted to help people, not animals. So I thought I'd be a doctor. Yeah. I think when I was younger, that's kind of how it started out on those mm-hmm. simple, like kind of a simple definition like that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to help people and to me that was kind of like the pinnacle of what helping people meant you know in my in my small brain being a doctor that's (laughs) how you help people yeah Uh, and it's definitely evolved over the years as I've developed as a person and my personality traits and quirks have come out and experiencing medicine both as a medical student and as a resident they've like all the different experiences have helped shape me or turn me into wanting to be a general surgeon. Okay. Do you feel like that's something that you're kind of born with, like that calling? Or do you feel like it's a profession that you can basically be like, okay, I want to be a doctor and here's how I get to it through A, B, C, and D. Like what what do you feel for yourself in that instance? I feel like it can go both ways. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people, again, think of, you know, the pinnacle of certain careers and thinking of, the doctor is being what, you know, one of the highest things you can achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, 
that's a bad way to think of it, but or it's not a bad way to think of it, but it's a way to think of it. You know, this is, I want to be successful and mm-hmm. doctors are in the public eye are people that are successful. So you can definitely do that A to B. I want to be successful, be a doctor. Yeah. But then the second part is you try other things or in the back of your mind, you just feel this calling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how it was for me. We had the dean of our medical school in Kansas. His name was uh, Gerald Minns. And he said there were three traditional callings, like professional callings. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a clergy or a pastor or a priest or something. And then the second calling was a lawyer. And then the third calling was a doctor. So for me, it, I definitely felt called to this. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say like in a religious sense, but in a spiritual sense, like mm-hmm. me as part of me felt like I had to be a doctor as time went on. Yeah. Like it was a part of your soul. Yeah, something like that. That's pretty cool. Okay, so we all know that becoming a doctor is a hard road, and it's not easy by any means, but what are some unexpected challenges that you have faced personally since becoming a doctor, or even on your journey to become a doctor? I think one of the things that I didn't understand is exactly how long it takes to get here. Mm -hmm. I graduated high school in 2006. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's 2018. Wow. That, that's and a I, long time. <laughs> and I'm still not done. Yeah. You know? So one of the things, and no one in my family or, or no one in the family is a doctor, you know? Yeah. So I didn't have anyone to look to, and I didn't exactly know how to reach out to people to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. And there's always that saying, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So without having been around it or experiencing it or anything like that, I didn't know how to get to that point you know we had advisors in college but you know this nowadays you have to get involved even before going to college Mm -hmm. to get into medical school sometimes so I feel like one of the hardest parts for me was just breaking through and actually getting into medical school Mm -hmm. that was one of the most difficult challenges yeah I feel like that's so hard especially not having anyone to look up to personally or even having a guide it's just kind of like a blind path that you feel called to and it's just you know you feel do you ever feel like you messed up or like doubted your choice to go to med school I don't feel like I ever doubted my choice but Mm -hmm. I feel like there are different paths I could have taken where I would have been more prepared and ended up in the same like ended up where I am now but Mm -hmm. been more prepared along the way so going from high school to college, mm-hmm. I really only applied to one college because I, I, I heard that they had a good pre-medical program and they, I had one advisor meeting with them beforehand and I thought, oh, this is going to be the place. They'll get me into medical school, mm-hmm. not really realizing everything else that it takes to get into medical school and they weren't, they weren't really outfitted to help me get there as well as some other places might have been. Yeah. That's tough, especially if you don't feel like you have all the information or as well prepared as you could have been. And what do you say is like one of the best lessons that you learned in medical school? And also, you know, I'll ask you the first question first and then the second one. So what's the best lesson you have learned in medical school? The best lesson. What it means to be human, probably. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a cheesy answer. It's (laughs) kind of too. It's like, 
what it means to be human and the idea of perspective yeah and what you're going through in your life mm-hmm. at any time so it doesn't really make sense but with without being in the hospital so no one comes to the hospital happy i, I guess some people do but almost no one comes to the hospital happy mm-hmm. so in medical school when you go into the clinical years I don't let's let me back up so mm-hmm. would it be helpful to even describe what it like the path to get to medical school and being a like how you know what I'm saying if yeah. this is people yeah. gain information I feel like there may be a big chunk of information that we're missing that's not necessarily addressed yeah definitely or like I don't know if you want to talk about application to medical school, requirements for medical school, what the actual medical school curriculum looks like. Yeah, like I want you to like tell us the real raw path to get there because I think yeah. we all have this glorified version that, okay, you go to your four years of college, then you get mm. into med school, and then you do your internship, and if you work hard, you'll get there. But like what's the real nitty gritty thing that is realistic? That way these people yeah. who want to do this profession to help people like – uh-huh. have a real answer instead of what they find on the internet right mm-hmm. okay so let me back way up then All because right. there's a, it's a long road mm-hmm. so to get into medical school requires a four-year degree mm-hmm. so automatically from high school you have to get into college so that means passing your entrance exams whether it be the ACT or the SAT, getting getting good enough scores on those to get into some sort of college where you get a four-year degree. There are people that go non-traditional routes where, you know, they end up, like someone is a welder and then they have an associate's degree and they go back and get their four-year degree and complete the prerequisites. Mm-hmm. So once you, once you get into college, you can do any degree that you want to. You can have a four-year degree in Spanish as long as you do the prerequisites, which are like chemistry, biology, biochemistry, organic chemistry. There's there's a number of them. Um, and any, any medical school website or like the MCAT, which is the medical school admission tests that you have to take to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. They have all the prerequisites that you need on their website okay. for which courses you have to take to get to be able to take the exam and then get into medical school. Mm-hmm. So like I went to a um, fine arts university and got a four-year degree in biology. So I actually have a bachelor of arts in biology, which doesn't really make sense. Yeah, that's pretty cool though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then usually you take your MCAT your junior year of college. And the MCAT is one of those like eight-hour tests where you go to a testing center and they make you check in at the front desk and you have to leave your cell phone and you can take a bottle of water and then you sit at a computer all day and you answer, I can't even remember how many questions it is, but it's something like six or eight hours long. You just answer questions all day. That's intense. Yeah. Um. But one thing that I really struggled with, and kind of speaking honestly, there's a lot of expenses to to get to this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something that will come up later 
is what do you see as a big problem with healthcare? But I think just regards to education and training and access to doing these things, there's a lot of people that are going to start out way behind just because of where they came from and who they are, whether it be financially or socially. It's expensive to go through all of this stuff. You know, you have to pay thousands of dollars to go to college. You have to pay hundreds of dollars to take the MCAT. You have to either pay for medical school or you have to take out loans to go to medical school. So I think that aspect of it is really also misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely a huge barrier to, to people wanting to go through with this. Man, so, I never thought of that. I usually just think like, okay, there's scholarships or if you're a lower income person, there would be financial aid for that. But you're correct. Like who's going to pay for those tests if you don't have the money? Yeah. Right. And you might be able to get, you know, there's always um, organizations or funds or scholarships mm-hmm. that, that you can apply for um, to help you out with some of these expenses. Absolutely. But that's just more work that you need to do. And mm-hmm. if you're already that person that is having to do all the extra work to get the grants and to get the scholarships, you're probably also the person that is needing to maybe work a few hours during the week to have some spending money too, whether it's for your cell phone bill or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to be working a part-time job to pay for those expenses and then also doing all your academic work. And, and that's kind of the path that I went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, you get your four-year degree, you take your MCAT, uh, and then maybe you get into medical school. Oh, and that's just uh, a maybe after all of that, huh? Yep. Yep. Wow. So, that's tough. so you take your MCAT and then you do your online application process mm-hmm. and they've made it really easy. So you fill out this whole online application, who you are, where you're from, all your college prerequisites. Um, they get a copy of your transcript and then you have to write your personal statement, which is what everyone dreads. It's like this thousand word essay on why you want to be a doctor, basically, or some big life event mm-hmm. as to you know what made you want to do this. Yeah, And so you do that, you fill out the application, and then you just pick what places you want to apply to. And it's it's literally a check mark. Wow. And you just click, oh, I want to apply to the University of Kansas. I want to apply to University of Missouri. I want to apply to University of Wisconsin Medical School. You just pick, you just check these boxes. Um and then for every box you check, it's associated with like another fee. So you can imagine by the end of this application, you're paying hundreds of dollars just to apply to medical school. Man, they really uh, know how to milk you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like every cent, uh, if you want to save lives, you have to pay. Yeah. So, and then, then they send out interviews. So anywhere between like September to February of your junior year, mm-hmm. then you are going on interviews to these different medical schools. Um, And then eventually they send you out and they say, we've offered you a spot at this medical school. You can come. Wow. Um, And so the first time I applied, I didn't get into medical school right away. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually got denied straight away. Wow. How did you feel? it, It was terrible. Yeah. It's like they 
you just feel judged on such a personal level. Mm-hmm. Like, because you, you just, you lay your entire life out there all throughout the application process, through the essay, through the however many years it's taken to get you to this point, whether you're doing you know, high school, college, medical school, or you're a non-traditional student, mm-hmm. you're putting yourself, all of you, on the line. And then they write you back in a letter and they say yes or no. And so when I got the first no, I said, like, oh my goodness, this is, that's it, I'm done. You know, I, I can't do this. I can't go through that whole process again. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I did. I, ultimately, it's what I wanted to do. So I, I ended up working for another year. Um, and then the hard part is, you know, why don't you get into med- medical school the first time? Or why don't you get in at all? And they don't list reasons in the letters as to why they deny you. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to do, you have to pick yourself apart and you have to pick your application apart. Um, or you have to meet with your advisor again, or you seek out some counsel from a trusted friend or or something like that. And they kind of go through your application with you and they help you. And it turned out my issue was I didn't have enough exposure to the medical community prior to applying to medical school. You know, I didn't have anyone in the family that was a doctor. I didn't have enough volunteer experience. I didn't have an internship at a hospital or anything like that. Like, I didn't have really any medical exposure. Mm-hmm. And so I think, for me, that was the biggest part. So then, over the next year, I kind of put myself back into the hospital, volunteered at the hospital, shadowed a couple surgeons, um, and then reapplied and went through the whole process all over again. Dang, that must have taken so much will just to basically get your soul crushed and judged and all of those <laughs> negative things and to, to push through and, and seek like to find out how you can better yourself. Like to me, that's something that is so admirable because how many people when they get a no, get back up and keep pushing. It's like yeah, one in a to. million. It's like one in a million. So I applaud you for that. That's yeah. that's incredible. But it comes back. It, it just comes back around, and it's like you really have to re-examine why you're doing this, and if it's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. The same with anything, whether you want to be a barber, whether you want to be a lawyer, whether you want to be a massage therapist, whether you want, whatever you want to be. You know, mm-hmm. um, if if you get a no, if that's a chance for you to re-examine where you're going and why you're doing this. And if nothing's changed about those things, then you just keep going, whatever that takes. So um, reapplied, and then the second time, I didn't get in either. No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So they offered me a preliminary acceptance. It's not really a wait list, but what they said was, if you do a year of additional schooling mm-hmm. through our program, it's a post-baccalaureate program, um, and if you do well during that year, you can prove to your, you can prove to us basically that you have what it takes to get into our medical school. So that's what I did. So I, I did another year of um, postgraduate work, and then I got accepted into medical school after that. And how much studying did you have to do? And you said you were working part time as well. Uh, I was working full time. Dang! So you were working full time. And you had to go through school again. Like, how did you manage that during that time? So, like, other students going through that same thing right now, what would your advice be? I think if you're working, 
the people that you're working for and with have to understand, you know, maybe you're not working at a place where you want to be there long term. Mm-hmm. The people there have to understand. Like I worked at Best Buy um, and I said, guys, I need you to understand, like I love working here. You guys are great, but I'm working towards something else. And if you could work with me, I want you to be open. You know, these, this is what's going to happen. This is the path that I'm going. And so just being honest with the people that you're working with at the time and letting them know what you're doing mm-hmm. um, and don't try not to spring it on them. Like, Oh, see you later. I'm done. I have to go to medical school now. You know? Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever likes that <laughs> surprises. Yeah. So I think being honest and then um, I had really great coworkers that were really willing to work with my schedule. So some of them were actually willing to rearrange the days that they worked and the times that they worked so that I could um, I could go to class. That's really incredible. That's yep. like I've never heard of anybody's coworkers having their back like that. Yeah. That is so it, cool. It was nice. It did mean that, of course, I worked a lot of evening shifts and a lot of weekends. Mm-hmm. But you know, during the week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever my classes were, I was able to go to class. That's great. So then, you know, you get into medical school, and then you do, most medical schools are four years. Um, some of them are six years, but that's combined with an undergraduate degree. So there's certain colleges around the country where you can apply for a six-year degree where you do your undergraduate and medical school in six years. Um, I did not do that, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) So, and then medical schools, there's all sorts of different curriculums across the country. The curriculum that I was in at, in Kansas, um, was two years in the classroom and then two clinical years where you're in the hospital, you know, six days a week for two years. And so that's what I did. Wow. That's a lot of time. And where are you currently, you're working in Wisconsin now? Yep. And so after medical school, well, during medical school, you know, during your clinical years, it gives you time to figure out what you're passionate about. You rotate through different clinical rotations, pediatrics, surgery, OBGYN, family medicine, internal medicine, all these different specialties you rotate through. Um, But then hopefully you find what you're looking for. And then you go through, it's basically like the MCAT process all over again. Okay. So you have to take um, USMLE step one, two, and three, you take step one after your first two years. Um, and then you take step two after your third year. And then you take step three sometime after you finish medical school, but you take these tests and, and each one of those tests is a time where you're going to get whittled out. So after your first two years of medical school, you take USMLE step one. And there's a lot of specialties that will select who they interview based on that step score. So, like, if you want to be a general surgeon, let's say the average USMLE step score for someone going into general surgery is 220. Um, The average score for someone going into neurosurgery is, like, 245. I know these numbers might not mean anything to anyone, but just know that there's different cutoffs so that if you know you want to do more of a competitive residency, mm-hmm. there's a little more pressure on you to do well. Not that everyone shouldn't try their hardest and do their best, but that can be a little discouraging if you take your step one and then you get the results back 
sometimes people will say, I didn't do well. Now I'm not going to get to go into the specialty that I want to get into. Don't listen to that. There's always exceptions. You can, if you don't score what you want, there's always a way. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. And then after you do your steps, you apply to residency, and it's the same thing. Fill out the online application. You check the boxes. They send out interview requests. You schedule your interviews, and these can be anywhere in the country. Um, you just click the boxes wherever you want to apply to. And so, I think I applied to sixty different uh, residency programs. Dang, yep. sixty! Wow. Yep. And do you have and to pay for those as well when you apply? Yep. Yeah, it's oh the same goodness. deal. Okay. And then you also have to, you know, think about, I interviewed in Arizona and I lived in Kansas at the time. So you have to be able to travel to these places. And, you know, I went on, what I say, 12 interviews. So I had to travel to 12 different programs to do these things. Mm-hmm. And fund that yourself as well. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, there, there are. So there's a few funding options. There's residency relocation loans that you can take out. Mm-hmm. Um and then hopefully you will have budgeted that in throughout the last two years of medical school to help pay for your residency interviews. That is tough. Whew. Yep. And then after that, you get into residency. And gen- like I said, general surgery is um, can be a five to seven year training. Okay. And what drew yep. you to the surgery? Surgery was, I'm not a very patient person. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I knew that I wanted to help people, but to be to enjoy what I was doing and to have a long career, I had to enjoy what I was doing on a daily basis. And so I need to see results. Um, if someone comes in and they're they have appendicitis, I can take their appendix out and they go home the next day and they're feeling 100% better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if someone has diabetes that's going to take lifelong control. You know, the, they're going to be seeing their family medicine or primary care doctor every six months for the rest of their life. And you're not going to see those immediate changes. You're not going to get the instant gratification. And I was just, I'm not a very patient guy. So surgery stuck out to me. Um, and then I also like doing things with my hands. So I knew I wanted to do something procedural. And so that's, those are the two biggest things. Why surgery is what I wanted to do. That's an interesting perspective. Like I would have never thought, you know, just like how you are as a person. I think that's really cool how you applied that to your profession as well. And that you had the opportunity to, to provide your strengths with that. I never thought of like surgery as like bada bing, bada boom compared to, like you said, someone with diabetes who it's like, you kind of have to work with the other person. And it's like you Mm -hmm. said, it's a long journey. Yeah. I mean, there definitely are aspects in surgery where it's like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, bariatric surgery is, one of those things where you're going to be seeing those people for years and years, you know, someone might get a bariatric surgery, but they don't lose all the weight, you know, the next week, it mm-hmm. takes them years and years to lose the weight. So, okay. What is your but favorite, things like that. what is your favorite surgery that you've performed so far? Um, PG, no, um, <laughs> whatever you favorite, want to talk about. <laughs> Uh, I, I think some of my favorite surgeries are, we call them open surgery, so we're not using the laparoscope or the, the tiny instruments to do surgery. It's it's where we make a large incision 
in the abdomen, um, and it usually involves either the colon or the stomach or the liver. Those types of operations are my favorite. Wow, that would be so crazy seeing someone just splayed open on the table. Ugh. Did you ever like get the heebie-jeebies or like feel uncomfortable when you first started doing that? Or was it just kind of like more no. interesting? It was, I, I'd never, I never felt uncomfortable. Um, and in the operating room, the patient really gets depersonalized. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, like in TV, I'm not sure that they really do the best job of it, but you don't see anything except for where you're operating. So, you know, if we're doing surgery on someone's abdomen or their belly, the, the whole rest of them is covered up with a blue sheet. Mm-hmm. And all that we see is, you know, this whatever, 20 by 15 inch open space where we're operating. Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, I guess that would make it easier <laughs> that we were not like, oh, this guy. Yeah, you're not looking into their face the whole time, you know, at least not general <laughs> yeah. surgery. So. They're all passed out and you're just like, oh, you're drooling. <laughs> wow, that is pretty cool to be having your hands on someone and helping them get better. That must be such a great yeah. experience and feeling. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, the ultimate act of trust. Yes. The patient with surgery, the patient is, they trust you with their whole life. They have no idea what you're going to do. They go to the operating room, they go to sleep. And then they wake up. They have no idea what happened in between, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're they're totally they they put their whole life in your hands. That is definitely true. That is such a long journey, but it seems like it is very very rewarding if you feel like this path is right for you. Yeah. And you're correct. I feel like TV kind of um, glorifies the process of becoming a doctor through Grey's Anatomy and House, mm-hmm. and and it's just kind of like. You see the drama and the love interest and, and yeah, they show like dramatic parts, but they don't tell you all this like little information that you would have no idea if, if I wasn't talking to you right now and you giving this information out to people. I think that's really great. There's a lot of, a lot of, it's very difficult. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to understand and know. And, you know, really speaking with advisors at your high school or at your college or at your medical school. Um, and finding someone that's in the field to talk to, you know, reaching out to people early is the best way to get your questions answered. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to start out behind. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you already have to start a little behind other people just by what you were born into. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing I'll say is whoever is listening, like, don't be afraid to approach your family doctor, approach your OBGYN, approach anyone in the medical community. All these people know what they had to go through to get to where they are. Um, and if you're remotely interested, you know, talk to these people and let them know. And they are more than willing to help you out. They'll put you in touch with whoever you need to be in touch with. If you want to shadow someone in the hospital, if you want to you know, follow your OBGYN around, you know, maybe you can't follow them around, but they'll find someone for you. And, and I think that's true across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. If you're willing to reach out, someone is always willing yep. to give information. All you have yep. to do is ask. Yep. And that's great, especially in the medical community, because like lives are in your guys's hands. I feel mm-hmm. like that's so important. You can't just keep to yourself and hope you skim by. Cause like right. that's someone's life. <laughs> yep. And, yeah. and, like, how much do you work 
throughout the week? Like how busy is your schedule? Has it calmed down a little bit since you're out of Mm. school and now in training or is it more intense? It's definitely more intense. So the ACGME, which is like the the governing body of residency, Mm -hmm. have guidelines for how long we can work, how often we can work, the maximum amount of hours in a week we can work. Uh, it didn't used to be like that. It used to be really unregulated. And so if you talk to you know a surgeon that's in their 70s, they'll talk about the good old days where there were no work duty hours or anything like that. Um, but so I'm not allowed to work more than 80 hours in a week. Mm-hmm. I have to average um, six days a week or I have to average 12 out of 14 days. Um, I can't work more than 28 hours in a row. I think, Mm -hmm. Um, but so kind of like an average day for me would be, I get up around four or four 15 in the morning and then I will, you know, shower, drive to work, change in the locker room into my scrubs. And then, um, I'll sit down at the computer and usually I'll sit down around four 45 or five o'clock in the morning. And then we do what we call pre-rounding where we look at all the patients that we're taking care of in the hospital. We have different lists or, or I guess, different groups of people that we take care of. So let's just say I'm working in the emergency surgery rotation. Mm-hmm. We, we would say normally have like 30 patients that we're taking care of. So I'll sit down and I'll go through all the overnight events that happened in the computer. I'll go through all their lab work. I'll go through all their vital signs overnight. I'll go through any imaging that was done overnight. I'll get sign out from the night resident that was there as to what happened. Um, and then in my mind, I'll kind of make plans for these patients. You know, what am I anticipating? What am I going to see when I go around on them? And then usually starting around six in the morning, we'll go as a team, um, meaning there's like an intern, which is a first year resident, and then there's a third-year resident, and then there's a fifth-year resident or some variation of that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll go to each patient's room starting at like 6 in the morning, and we'll go in, examine them, talk to them, see how they've been doing over the past 12 hours or so, um, and then we'll move on. And so we'll do that until we're done with all 30 patients. It usually takes us about an hour. Um, and then cases start about 7.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so we'll do operations from 7.30 until whenever we're done. And that could be, who knows, sometimes it's not until 8 or 9 at night. Sometimes it's 2 or 3 in the afternoon. But then sometime during the day, we have to round with the attending physician and see all those patients individually again. Um, And then during the day, we're also writing notes on patients. We're signing orders on patients, prescribing medications in the hospital. We're doing procedures on the floor. And so we're doing all these things throughout the day. And then around 6 p.m., we sign out to the night team that takes over for us. Wow. And then they then they take over for the patients overnight. But sometimes there's still some notes to do or there's still some things to finish up or there's an operation that's starting around 5 or 6. And so you feel kind of obligated to stay and do that. So usually I'm at the hospital from 4.45 until about 7 at night or 7.30. Wow, that is a long day. Yep. <laughs> and intermixed in those days are conferences for education. Um, there's, you know, we're required to do a certain amount of continuing education during our training. And then 
Um, there's also Grand Rounds and some other kind of group activities that we do in Simulation Lab and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so usually we do that six or seven days a week. Um, usually we work 12 days in a row, get two days off, 12 days in a row, get two days off. How do you stay energized to work that schedule? Do, are you just a very high energy person, motivated, or do you have to kind of pump yourself up to, to have that schedule? I have to, in the morning, I have to pump myself up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get to work and I change. I get my first of like 20 cups of coffee of the day. Yeah. Um, and then it takes me a while to get started in the morning. But then once I'm kind of in my flow, I'm fine. I Like my energy level is great all day. I feel good. And then the downside is that when I get home, I don't want to do anything. You know, I have no energy. I'm married, so... I have to make sure I have time for my family and my wife at home. And yeah. you know, those are those after work is when everything suffers. Yeah. So. And how do you manage to balance your personal life with your career? Uh, I don't, my, my gut answer is I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now work is a priority mm-hmm. and it's hard like, I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to go into work today. I want to hang out with my wife. She has a day off, and we're going to go out on the lake or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't work like that. And so I'm sacrificing a, a ton of time. There's not really any balance. I can't go to work any less than I already am. So the the best way I've tried to, to do it is to be intentional in the times when I'm not at work and to try and separate myself when I get home from what was going on during the day. So making sure I don't bring notes or work home with me, making sure that when I get home, I'm home and I'm not thinking about what happened during the day and that my time is focused only on what's going on at home and my wife and the dogs and the cats and stuff, you know. Yes, definitely. That sounds challenging, but at the same time, that's so great that your wife seems very um, supportive in your venture. And that's something that like a lot of people don't have is support. And it sounds like she's pretty supportive. She's very supportive. I don't, I mean, it's not like everything is perfect and we don't get frustrated and she's not mad at me. Mm -hmm. She uh, like the thing that suffers the most during this is your relationships with other people, your ability to go hang out with friends, your ability to hang out with your family but I'm sure I could be doing a better job at making my outside of life or my personal life a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, it's another job. It is, it's really hard. Yeah. I feel like even for people who don't have as demanding a job mm-hmm. as you do, it's still mm-hmm. tough. Even if you work a part-time job, a full-time job, you're going to school, like having healthy relationships and keeping them that way is difficult just on a human level. Yeah. So I can't even imagine like you're working all day and you only have a little sliver of time to be with your family. Yeah. And do you think that your schedule, like once you get into your career a little later on down the line, is it going to ease up or is this just the life of a doctor? For, I think it'll get a little bit easier, but for the most part, I think a lot of this is the life, you know, maybe I'll get to work a little bit later. Maybe I'll get off a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully I'll work less weekends, but it's still going to be, you know, a tiring schedule. Yes, definitely. So it's, yeah, I think kind of in it for the long run at this point, you know. 
yeah <laughs> no going back now yeah but i think that's great just the the level of commitment you have to have for this profession like just talking to you i think when i i think of doctors i think of people who don't not that i've ever had a really bad experience but you hear people saying oh my doctor never listens to me they don't know what they're talking about like they, they're never even in the room. They're only there for five minutes. And we kind of lose this respect for the people who have sacrificed their time in their life and their family because we don't see the behind the scenes of their lives. We don't see the amount of schooling and the money and the time and the sacrifice. All we see is someone who's in a room for a couple minutes and then they're gone. So I definitely have a newfound respect for, for doctors. Yeah. It's hard. And, you know, we want to be there for our patients where, you know, if you're at a hospital and they have a training program, so there's residents there, mm-hmm. there's usually more doctors around than if you're at a private hospital where there's no residents. But like, there's a lot of like non-direct patient care that happens. So much of our time is spent on the computer doing electronic documentation or things like that. And then, you know, we're also like I said, we're learning at the same time. So I have. Uh, like at least eight hours a week of required during the daytime hours training that I have to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't leave a lot of time. And especially with a surgical specialty, we aren't necessarily available all day during the day because we're in the operating room with other patients. So our times that we get to see the patients are early in the morning before we start cases, during the day in between cases, or at the end of the day after we finished our operations for the day. Yes, so definitely. It, it's definitely it's definitely frustrating from the patient's perspective because they probably do feel like no one's ever in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but that's why I feel like there's a good team of like nurses and people who help the process in being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I think also we live in an age where we want instant gratification and everything's at our fingertips. That when it comes to our medical care, we kind of expect the same, the same thing. But I feel like that's something that you know you can't have everything at your beck and call at the same time. Yeah. So I think us as people, we need to to just be appreciative of of this profession and that we do have people who know their stuff and can take care of us. Because without you guys, I mean, we'd probably all be dead by now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's just the truth. It it's. I agree there needs to be respect both ways, you know, patient to doctor, doctor to patient. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, patients and families need to be advocates for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we know what we're talking about. Yeah, like I said, we have kind of a plan that we expect for the patient, but that has to be in conjunction with the patient's goals and wishes too. So, um, yeah, it's really got to go both ways. Yeah, it's like teamwork makes a dream work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in your opinion, what's one aspect of our U.S. healthcare system you feel works best now and, and what we could improve on? Uh, this is a loaded question. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to get political. It could just be like a general thing just because I feel like that can get into a heated discussion or people can get offended. But just from your perspective being in the field, what what is your viewpoint on that? Well, so I feel like I'm in a little different scenario because I work at a quaternary facility. Mm-hmm. People from all over the world get referred to our hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I see all these people that come to our hospital, and I feel like they have 
pretty good access to specialist care mm-hmm. when they get to the hospital. You know, it's probably not everyone has good access to medical care, and especially not everyone has good access to um, a surgeon. And so that's definitely a downside. But I feel like one of the upsides is our high level of technology, the advancements that we've made over the last 60 or 70 years with our, you know, what we have to offer to patients. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also the commitment that our healthcare system is making to preventative medicine, because that's where it's at, preventative medicine. Um, As a surgeon, I make very little difference in a patient's survival or how long they live. You know, I don't really affect people that much most of the time. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of other things that play into how long someone's going to live and uh, our healthcare system and the things that we do isn't a big part of that. It's all about preventing things from happening. So, and there's a lot of social aspects that go into that as well, like socioeconomic and everything. But I think the the healthcare system's commitment to preventative medicine at this point. Yeah, and I feel like us as patients, we have to do our part, like you said earlier, as in taking care of our bodies and eating correctly and exercising. Mm-hmm. And we can't just leave a live an unhealthy life and roll into the, the doctors and be like, fix me. It's like, yeah. You didn't do your part, so how can I do my part? Yeah. At least that's how I see it. Teamwork. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, yeah. think, so I think ed- that's great. Yeah, education, you know, I think public education and preventative health care. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, very cool. And in your daily life, do you, do you care what people think about you? Like as a doctor, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on you. There's maybe mm-hmm. there's a status to uphold and like, do you care what people think about you? Or are you more focused on, I'm going to live my life the way that I feel is true to me? Like, how do you deal with that social pressure? So I feel like I probably do think about what people think about me, but it's not um, oh, what are they thinking about me on a personal level? Mm-hmm. It's what are they thinking about me? Can I trust this person? Is he dependable? Is he someone that I can work with? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that I think about leading up to that moment. So, you know, first impressions, being respectful, being professional, having good hygiene, being well kept. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to, the person has to look at you and trust you you know, or they have to interact with you and trust you. So I do think about what I say. I think about how I interact with the patients, um, not because I'm worried about it on a personal level, but I'm worried about how it would affect our relationship. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like you don't yeah, want to I'm come not... across as someone who doesn't know what they're doing or, you know, because as, as crappy as it sounds, like first impressions have a big impact on people. They really yeah. do. And whether we yeah. want to believe that or not, it's true. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. So I want, I want, I don't, and I don't want people to think I'm judging them. Yeah. Like I said, people come into the hospital and they're not having a good time and I don't want to make their time their worse. And so I want to be that person that they can trust and talk to and open up to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if anyone isn't being totally themselves with me, then it's going to be a hard, hard for me to really help them. Yeah. It's like, you're not getting all the information that you need to right. help them. Yep. That makes sense. So where do you see yourself in the future? I know this is hard to think. Maybe you're not even thinking about that. But do you have a goal for yourself professionally and personally? Or are you kind of just dealing with what's in front of you one step at a time? 
uh, both. Mm-hmm. So probably I would say the next 10 years, I guess. Well, number one, I'd like to actually finish my training. Yes, that's important. So finish my residency and then get a job in a place where my wife also has the ability to do what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And what does she do? She is, uh, she's a social worker mm-hmm. and I guess uh, a therapist. She's like a behavioral support person at her school. Okay. That's an important job. That really is. Yep. Yep. Very cool. And what about personally for yourself? Personally? Um, well, I feel like I need to do some preventative health care for myself. So I guess personally, I, I'd like to continue to maintain my health and stay healthy. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'd also like to, well, number one, stay married because you always hear the statistics about doctors and divorces and all that sort of stuff. So I want to make sure that I keep my marriage a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and then personally, I want to be able to have some time outside of work to enjoy the things that I enjoy. That is true. And what are some things that you enjoy doing in your time off aside from being in the hospital and working? Mm-hmm. Um, so being outside, I'm always inside at work during the winter up north here. We get, you know, the sun sets very early. So I almost never see the sun during the fall and winter. So I love being outside, whether that's hiking or camping or canoeing or kayaking or working on the house, anything outside. I enjoy. Yes, I can't imagine being confined in four walls for that many hours in a day and not even seeing the sun. Yep. Yeah, like you, I I need to be outside. If I'm inside Mm -hmm. all day, I need to get outside and go for a walk or a run or just something. You need one of of those sun lamps, you know? (laughs) Yeah, like just hanging out underneath it. Thankfully, I'm in Arizona, so we see the sun way more than we need to. So Ugh. I am not depressed. That's a good thing. No. <laughs> yeah, the sun keeps keeps me going, that's for sure. And what are you most afraid of about your future? Like what worries you when you think about the future? Something trusting myself is something that I worry about. There's a lot of like surgeons might have one really bad thing happen to a patient. Mm-hmm. And it kind of changes their whole career trajectory. And they're not able to recover from it. And so what I worry about is being able to deal with and process something that happens to one of my patients, whether it's something that I could have helped or not. You know, like if I unintentionally harmed a patient and caused them to die or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to be really hard for me to deal with that. And and it's going to be important for me to learn from my mistakes but knowing that my mistakes are people is going to be really hard for me. So I think, I guess, just learning to process that and have some way to debrief and have some way to not let it negatively impact my entire career. Yeah, I can't even imagine having that weight on my shoulders, like one wrong move and it's someone's life. That, mm-hmm. that is a big weight to carry and definitely something to not take lightly. That is... Wow. And what is some advice that you would give your younger self if you were, if young you was standing in front of you right now, what would you tell him? Just keep going. It's a good one. Very simple. <laughs> Just, it, it's, it's, 
really if if what you're trying to achieve or what what you're trying to do i guess if what i'm trying to do i believe in and that's what i really want to do i just need to keep going i just need to put the time in i need to keep doing it and i'm going to get to where i want to get perfect that is great advice and i think that can be applied to anyone like whatever you're going through what your end goal is like there's always going to be challenges and roadblocks and you know, there's always going to be someone who's willing to put in the work and can beat you. So you can't give up or else someone else is going to be having your dream. Yeah, I'd, it's it's all about just if you're not happy doing what you're doing every day, mm-hmm. it's going to transition or carry over into other parts of your life. Like, yes. When I was in medical school, I thought, I don't want to be a surgeon. I can't be a surgeon. Their schedules are so busy. Everyone gets divorced that's a surgeon. They're jerks. They don't have any bedside man. Like, all the negative stereotypes of being a surgeon I thought about. And I thought, like, that's not me. I can't do that. But so I tried, you know, I did some off-service rotations. And I spent time with non-surgeons. And it was miserable. Like it was, I was just so bored every day. I, I, I couldn't do it. And so I tried, I actively tried to not do surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a physician in Wichita, Kansas, which is where I did my clinical years. And he told me like, you, you have to do what you enjoy because if you're at work and you're not enjoying what you're doing, then you're going to go home and it's going to carry over into your personal life. So, even if I work banker's hours and I get off at 4 p.m. and I go home and I can spend the entire night with my family, if I'm miserable all day at work, it's going to carry over. And so that was really important to me. Even though I'm spending less time at home, mm-hmm. I'm a happy I'm a happy person at home, you know. Yeah, and that's great. That's something that I feel like a lot of people can't say because, I don't know, I feel like we get trapped in this idea that we have to be doing something and, and we can't be real with ourselves about what we truly want to be doing. So we mm-hmm. kind of live this life that, like, what are you living for? Like, why? Are, what's the point of living if you're not happy? Like you said, like, you have to enjoy your work. Like, you know, it's fact. We work. We need to make money. We need to support ourselves. So why not enjoy it? And, you know, I think maybe a lot of people might be afraid to try because they're afraid of maybe not reaching what they set out to do. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, and I, that was definitely me for a while. I was afraid of failing and I was afraid that if I did try this, it wasn't going to happen anyway. You know, why would, how could I get into medical school? How could I be a doctor or whatever field you want to translate that into? But at least you got to try and give it a shot. Yes, that is so, so true. And Dylan, I don't want to take up any more of your time. And I just thank you so much for sharing this information. And I hope that anyone who is deciding to take this path in their life or they're currently in medical school and having doubts or even if you don't even want to go into the medical field but you are having some sort of feeling i hope that this podcast really resonates with you guys and and that dylan has inspired you in some way even if it's just to to think about what you're doing in life and and to push that aside and just go for it and make what your dream is to, to happen. And Dylan, do you have any anything else that you would like to share with us before you go? Any advice? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I just encourage everyone to do, like, whatever you're doing, be passionate about it, and do the best that you can do every day. All right, that is beautiful advice. All right, Dylan, thank you so, so, so much. And this 
is a wealth of information that I'm sure a lot of people will be so thankful for. And thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.